Our reading comes this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And we take a pause in our series in Romans just to consider together the work of the Holy Spirit this morning as Paul teaches us of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians. So 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and we'll read all 16 verses, the whole chapter. There we read. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. What happened at Pentecost? Well, Quite a lot happened. The disciples were in this little room together, having been told by Jesus to stay there and to wait until uh, he had sent a helper to equip them. And then once they had received this help that was to be given, they were to go out and they were to preach the good news of the gospel. We're fine with that. And if that was all we were to say about Pentecost, then we would all be absolutely right about every opinion we have on the subject. But of course, that's not where we uh, end up. We tend to have a whole range of different views about what this means for us today. Does this describe what should be the case for every believer? That you become a Christian, you are filled with God's Spirit, which happens to every believer when they become a Christian. They are filled with God's Spirit. And then we should have the ability to do what? Go and heal the sick, speak in other languages without having to go to the bother of uh, learning them, speak in heavenly languages. There are all sorts of different ideas people have about what the Spirit does to us and for us off of this uh, springboarding, off of this account in the book of Acts. And if we were to follow through the book of Acts, we would see the apostles do many amazing, miraculous things. 
And if we wanted to this morning, I'm sure we could get into the weeds of all of that and spend hours debating it. And of course, people marshal great mountains of Bible verses to shore up their view as opposed to other views as to what the Holy Spirit does, what the Holy Spirit is for. And obviously, all those who support my view are the ones who are right, as is so often the case with each one of us. That's just how we work, isn't it? This is where we are. Well, this morning, what I want to do is look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and identify the very core of what the Holy Spirit does. There are other days for us to debate all of the other things that we might talk about, about healings and miracles and uh, speaking in other languages and so on. But the Holy Spirit, at its very core, at His very core, always does what we're going to look at this morning. In filling us with power, He will always point us ultimately to God and to glorify God. And we see that in a number of ways uh, worked out in this passage this morning. So whatever we might feel about the work of the Spirit, we can disagree about many things, but this we can't disagree about. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul has been Um, already for a chapter and will in the next chapter try and deal with the subject of disunity, which is what I love about chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians. In order to deal with Christians disagreeing about all sorts of things, Paul brings the Holy Spirit in to the discussion to make sure everybody agrees on what's going on, which is ironic beyond belief when you think about the division that has existed in the church uh, around the subject of the Holy Spirit. But this is Paul's desire. The believers in Corinth have got just a huge knot of different ideas about what believing in God, what being a Christian is. They've brought so much of their culture into their faith, which is not unreasonable. It's what we all do. We bring what we know to our faith, and we try and express our faith using the the stuff that's in our heads, the, the culture that we've grown up in, the way that we see the world. But the problem is, it's brought them to this point where the church is tearing itself apart. It's dreadfully sad that the church has only been planted for, at best, a couple of decades by this point, and already it's tearing itself to pieces, and Paul is seeking to weld them back together. Interestingly enough, he doesn't do so by getting them to see how nice the other person is or to think of, you know, just doing the best that you can for the people around you. He goes to theology. He uses theology as a means of binding together the believers in Corinth in the early church. And he does so through his uh, teaching on the Holy Spirit, where he reveals in verses 1 to 5 of this chapter that the Spirit, whatever else we might think the Spirit does, the Spirit leads us to salvation. When we look at the beginning uh, of this little passage, he says, When I came to you, brothers, I didn't come to you proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He didn't come with great sort of philosophical jargon, with high-sounding theology or anything else. He just presented to them the fact that Jesus Christ is who He said He is. I brought nothing among you except Jesus Christ, that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that he was crucified. 
And the implication is crucified for their sins, to forgive them for their sins. The Corinthian believers are believers in Jesus because they had all accepted that Jesus had died for them. That he was the sinless son of God and that he had taken their place. And they had turned from their old way of living to God's way. Now, we might look upon this as being fairly ordinary. That's what sharing the gospel is, isn't it? We tell people about Jesus and we tell people that they are sinners in need of salvation and that Jesus is the way to that salvation. That seems fairly straightforward. But by the measure of the world, by worldly standards, this is complete foolishness. This is no way to to encourage people to come in to the church. Surely you want to present people with things that will be um, enticing to them. You want to make the church look attractive. You don't want to tell people that they're sort of rotten at the core, that they're sinners. That makes no sense whatsoever. We, we share something in common together. Let's use that, like a, a cricket club or like a book club or, or some other thing, a sports uh, club, a football, um, a shared passion for football or rugby or Eurovision or whatever it might be. We, we can all be united together by this one thing. That's the wisdom of the world. But Paul said, no, that's not how I wanted things to be. That's not the way that the church grows. That's not the way that anyone actually becomes a Christian by showing them how awesome the church is. Because quite often the church isn't all that awesome. Quite often we do fail. We don't get it much better than a lot of other people in the world. Because we're human and we struggle. It seems like foolishness to the way of thinking of the world. And yet, Paul says, this is the wisdom that comes from God. It doesn't come from man. It's not something that anyone of their time would understand as being good or wise. It's not something that anyone of our time today thinks is good or wise. What men and women would do in their day and in ours is what men and women have done ever since the very beginning. They have found other ways of giving meaning to their life, other ways of knowing God, other ways of trying to deal with their problems. And every single one of these ways has one thing in common. It involves me working really hard to make me better. And it doesn't matter what religion you look at in the world, or even those people who say they have no religion, which is of course false. It's just a different religion is they all have in common the idea that I will make me better just by laboring really, really hard. They operate on this idea that I'm capable of doing that. I'm good enough to do that. And Paul says, this isn't the way of salvation. This isn't the way of the church. And the Holy Spirit reveals that to us. The message of salvation, he says, is secret, hidden wisdom, a wisdom that comes only from God, which he has decreed, in ages past. Now, just to make what Paul is saying clear here, he's not saying that we have something that if you come along to the church and you say you're a Christian, you sort of do all the right things, say all the right things, after you're in the gang, then we'll give you this sort of secret hidden wisdom that makes you a proper Christian. He's not saying that. Nor is he saying that you need to go and climb a mountain somewhere and, you know, secrete yourself into a monastery with a saffron-robed men and spend the next 80 years in meditation somewhere to understand the depth of the salvation of God. He's not saying that either. That's not what he means by secret hidden wisdom. What he means is actually very simple. 
is that God reveals it to people personally. That's it. It is something which is not accessible by going to a school and learning a way of life. It's not something that you can learn from a a book, whether it be a self-help book or any other kind of book. Interestingly enough, it is not even something that you can sort of just pick up by reading the Bible. The Bible describes the way to salvation. And yet we recognize many people read the Bible. And many people know the Bible actually very well and yet are not Christians. And the reason is that the message of salvation is secret. It is hidden. It is revealed purposefully by God to people. And Paul's going to go on and say that that is the work of the Spirit. In verse 4, it's a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So when Paul stood up and without sort of cleverly constructed words and arguments, he just presented the, the bare bones of the gospel to the people of Corinth, the Holy Spirit, God himself, revealed to them their sin and their need of salvation. And the way to salvation, God did all of that for them. It wasn't something that their neighbors picked up on. It wasn't something that their teachers in school knew or understood, or the priests of another religion could somehow just stagger across. The Holy Spirit purposefully revealed the need for salvation and the means of salvation to the believers in Corinth. And we know Paul doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit did this because they were particularly spiritual people. Because Paul was going to spend the whole rest of 1 Corinthians and then on into 2 Corinthians dealing with the fact that they are some of the most ungodly people that Paul's ever had to deal with. They're doing all sorts of truly atrocious things to one another. And Paul has to try and unpick this whole sorry mess. They're definitely not the kind of people that God would want if that's the way it worked. God picks the brightest and the best. God's Spirit alone revealed it to them through His Word but also by His Spirit. And it is a secret that can be revealed to anyone if they will ask God for it and trust that He will provide it. Paul relies on this fact when he shares the gospel, not just in Corinth, but all over the world. Paul was more than capable of speaking in philosophical terms. He did that when he went to Athens. He was presented to a whole great sort of enclave of the best and the brightest minds in Athens, which was the sort of intellectual capital of the world at the time. And Paul was more than capable of going toe-to-toe with these people. But that's not what he did. Because Paul knows that if he can reason you into salvation, you can just be reasoned back out by someone else who happens to have a better turn of phrase, just a better way of expressing themselves. God has never done it this way. He has never argued people into his family through clever men and women. And there are stunning examples of what happens when that is what churches try and do. There was one not all that far from us where uh, we were in a previous church where a whole group of people had come into this, uh, this other church. The church had really swelled in numbers, and it was in large part because the minister was this sort of really great, outgoing character, a wonderful way with people, a great preacher, and it was the, the charisma of his character that just drew people to him. But the problem was when he left, the church just disintegrated, and there was only about a third to a quarter of the people left after he'd gone four or five years, moved on somewhere else. They came for him. Because of his words and his character, not because they'd been convicted by the Spirit of God. Paul says, No, 
I simply proclaim the gospel in all of its difficulty for you to accept. And because you were saved by God, almost in spite of the the, the, the brutality of that gospel message that you're a sinner in need of salvation, God unquestionably saved you because you would never accept that ordinarily, would you? You have been made a Christian by the Holy Spirit as he applied God's word to you. And you understood you had that moment. It wasn't through the wisdom of the world. When I was a student in Dundee, the, student, the, the university had finished for the summer and I was graduating that summer and I'd gone back up to Aberdeen and then I'd been notified helpfully by the university I needed to come back down to pick up my robes and all the other stuff for graduation. So I got in the car, drove down to Dundee and on the way back up, uh, I got a flat tire. The valve blew itself off the, the tire of the, the car. I've got no idea how that happened. And I ended up in a lay-by having to negotiate changing the wheel in a car for the first time on my own. And I had a sort of an idea of, as to what to do, so I dug all the stuff out of the boot. But the, the jack that I got out of the boot of the car was not the one that I had learned to use when somebody had shown me how to, to change the wheel on a car. And it just didn't make any sense. There, there wasn't any of the bits that I had seen on any other car jack ever in my life. It was just this stupid piece of metal with a weird flappy bit on it and a screw in the middle. And it made no sense. And there was no possible way you could use this to lift a car up to change its wheel. There was just no possible way. And so I phoned my dad in the sort of earlier days of mobile phones, which I was very grateful for. And I had to say to him, this is ridiculous. Whoever designed this was a moron. There's no way this thing can possibly work. It looks like it's upside down and back to front, and it just makes no sense. And my dad, bless him, just gently kept saying to me, well, it has to work because that's the jack that came with the car, and here is what you need to do. And he's reminded me of several, on several occasions of my frustration and the general lack of ability that I had to do this. But eventually, something clicked in my head, and all of a sudden I realized the problem wasn't with the jack, the problem was with me. Actually, it was just ingeniously designed, and if I just understood how to use it, then there wouldn't have been a problem in the first place, and I got the tire changed in about two minutes, and then got back on the road up to Aberdeen. The problem wasn't any of the material at my disposal. The problem was me. I just couldn't see it. It just wasn't possible for me to to do anything with all of this stuff, because my own limitations meant I was incapable of affecting change. And the same is true for us before we knew Christ. We were incapable of putting all of this stuff together. I I had a conversation with someone in the street the other day, not a Christian, who said off the back of, you know, this lockdown easing, you can see the way that people are starting to live. They just couldn't care less about other people and are just mixing the numbers way too high and it's going to result in another lockdown if we're not all careful. And he said very interestingly, it just reveals to us, doesn't it, that people are fundamentally really selfish. I said, yes, yes it does. So what do we do about that? (laughs) Nothing. There's nothing you can do. You can't make someone not selfish. You can't even make yourself not selfish anymore. We can't, because we can't see another way of being. It's just the the, the world that we live in, the ocean we swim in, as it were. And when we're Christians, when we struggle with our faith, when we feel far from God, it is often because... We have shifted our vision away from God or we have made God smaller and we have made us bigger or the problem bigger and we just can't see a way out. 
we can't see a way how it's possible that God would ever allow this or that I could ever deal with this situation or circumstance. Well, Paul tells us as he lives amongst the Corinthians, as he preached amongst the Corinthians with feelings of weakness and fear, not great confidence and strength that Paul's going to ride into town and sort out all their problems. He simply proclaimed the gospel and the Spirit of God did the work. And that is our desire. The Spirit of God is responsible for making you aware of your sin and enabling you to cast yourself upon Christ for salvation. And that doesn't stop after you've become a Christian. And so as we struggle and as our heads go down and we wonder how on earth we can ever get through this circumstance, our prayer is for more of God's Spirit, that He would open our eyes, reveal the the reality of our circumstances, our need of Him, and help us to cast ourselves more and more upon Christ so that we're able to go on. Just gripping with knuckles white and just hoping to get through it probably isn't going to work all that often. Because it relies on your strength, on your ability, on my strength, my ability, and we're just not strong enough for that. But the Spirit of God is. Paul tells us he relies completely on the Spirit of God for the salvation of the people in Corinth. And the Spirit has led him to Christ and into salvation and many through him. And so he trusts the Spirit implicitly. Even as Paul struggles in his own fear, the Spirit will do the work. He leads us to salvation. In verses 6 through to 13, we find the Spirit leads us, having saved us, into greater Christ-likeness. When you first become a Christian, it's important to note that that God isn't sort of taking you and just chipping off some of the, the dirt that has sort of crusted itself to you that sin causes, and you're sort of the finished article, and God just polishes you up a bit. That's not what happens. God doesn't tinker around the edges of your life to sort of make you that little bit more acceptable so you're in now. He takes you and he makes you completely new. We've been thinking about that in Romans, haven't we? We are dead. The old man is dead. And a whole new person has risen up uh, to new life. The spirit which filled you before is gone. The spirit of the world, Paul calls it in verses 6 through to 13. And it's been replaced by the Spirit of God. And this means that we no longer see the world the way we did before. Remember the way we were before we encountered Jesus. It meant that we couldn't see, we couldn't understand what God was teaching. We might read the Bible, but it's a complete mystery to us. We, we, we could recognize the church as it existed, but just didn't ever really understand what it was or what our place was amongst that people because they're not the same as me. And I can't quite put my finger on why. We couldn't see what God wanted us to do or wanted us to know and wanted us to understand. We hadn't been given his spirit. Well, we now have had that old spirit taken away and a new one has taken its place. The the old is dead and the new has come. The old way says... It's okay to do small bad things as long as they are small and won't be noticed. The old way says, I'll do whatever it takes to make sure I'm okay and I get what I need in order to get by. The old way says that my fulfillment is the most important thing in my life. But that's dead. It's gone. And something new has taken its place. Spirit of God. The wisdom of our world thinks like this. And what's interesting is the wisdom of our world constantly dies. It's constantly being changed all the time. 
You look at the, the advice that you've been given over the course of your life. Let's imagine for a moment that the only advice you ever took was from um, magazines or from adverts, wherever that might be, in the telly and on the internet, whatever else it is. You hear all of this advice all the time. This would make your life better. That would make your life better. Or you get the articles in the newspaper that I remember seeing. There was a whole flurry of them in the probably the late 90s, early 2000s, every week a newspaper ran an article that if you drank too much apple juice, it could give you cancer. Or if you drank too much milk, or if you ate too much bacon, then ultimately you would get cancer from one of these things. And what they didn't tell you in the article was, yes, technically drinking apple juice might give you cancer, but you'd need to drink 15 gallons a day, every day, for 50 years, and that would probably kill you well before any other disease that it caused. But, but it, it was constant, just this barrage of information telling you how you ought to live your life. And it constantly dies and was renewed all the time in a slightly different form. And none of it actually leads to anything better in your life. It just leads you to sort of chop one thing out for a time and then put something else in, in its place. But then that new thing is told, we're told is, is not any good for you. You need another thing and so on. Paul tells us, This is the wisdom of the world that passes away constantly. It never does us any good, but because it's always new, we sort of latch on to it. And he says the rulers of the world in Jesus' day were subject to this. They couldn't get what Jesus was, who he was was and what he was doing. And so if they had understood Paul says, they wouldn't have crucified him. But because they're subject to this ever-dying, ever-replaced knowledge, then it made sense to them at the time. This guy's causing a load of problems. He's going to cause even more problems in the future. Better if we just kill him. The Jews of Jesus' day felt that he was leading people away from their party and reducing their power. Better just to kill him because in the long run, what we want is best for Israel, isn't it? It's the wisdom of the world. But God was at work bringing about something greater than any of them could understand and through their sinful actions actually brings about the change that they want to see. Peace in the world, transformation in the lives of men and women, a more faithful people of God. And Paul says we've been given this spirit which is from God, which changes the way we see everything so that we recognize what God is doing. And the world looks at that and thinks, this is nonsense. What you want is our understanding, our wisdom. And we can recognize that's not the way we want to go. We want to go the way that God has said in his word, even though it appears as complete nonsense to us. And in receiving guidance from God, we find that we are given much better advice. Paul says in verse 11, who can know the thoughts of a person but the spirit of that person? Now, looking at you this morning, I can't know what's going through your mind, apart from how long is this going to go on, when will it finish, and when can I get home and, and get my lunch, perhaps. But that's more of a guess than a, a, you know, a, a concrete, I know what you're thinking. But what we have here is a glimpse into the mind of someone else that we can't get anywhere else. I can, I can ask you, what are you thinking? And I can probably trust you that you'll tell me, at least reasonably truthfully, what you're thinking right now. But I can't ever know. The only one that knows is you. Your spirit inside is the only one that has understanding. And Paul says that's what's going on with God's spirit. God's spirit understands everything God's doing. His motivations, his purposes, his plans, everything. And here's the truly amazing thing. Paul says, we get that spirit in us when we become Christians. 
So this is the one time in your life where you can actually know to some degree what someone else is thinking. Because the Spirit of God has taken up residence within you and is revealing bit by bit in baby language more often than not because it's all that our feeble minds can cope with what God is, is doing as he works in your life and in the world. It's amazing. It's truly astonishing that, that we are able to do this, but we are able to come to God's word and read it and see what he is doing and understand it appears like folly to the world, but I can see the wisdom in this. It's amazing. It just bowls me over and I, I just want to go and worship this God because of everything he's doing. It's because God's spirit has been revealing himself to you. Most of us would be humiliated to have our inner thoughts displayed bare before the people in this room, our family, our friends, whoever. And yet God delights in it because God's will is always perfect. And as he reveals more of it to us, the more we follow in his way, the more faithfully we serve, the better we do, the more we grow as Christians. This is how God leads us. This is how God instructs us. We can understand things freely given to us by God, Paul says, because we are now spiritual people, not simply worldly people. And what he would have us know is Christ and his rule in our lives. Regardless of whatever else we think the Holy Spirit does, this is the key. He reveals to us Christ and his rule in our lives. No one has ever seen or heard or imagined anything as wonderful as this, Paul says. It's unbelievable that we should have a Savior in Jesus who comes to us by grace through faith and not only save us, Remove the penalty for our sins, but lead us on into this life to look more and more and more like him whilst we constantly struggle and fall and sometimes resist him. But we more and more rely on the grace and the mercy of God. And as we do so, the more we grow. The closer we become to Christ, the closer we grow to one another. Because here's the truly amazing thing, which is why the Holy Spirit should bring greater unity rather than less unity in the church. As the Spirit reveals to you your life God's life and how those two things are to be reconciled in ever greater degree. He's doing the same thing, unbelievably, to the person sitting next to you. And we might look at them and think, yeah, okay. They're a lot further back down the road than I am, perhaps. Or maybe you look at them and think they're way further ahead of me um, than I might ever get to. But this is how the church is united, because we're all in the same boat. We're all walking the same way. We're all relying on the same spirit. We're all being and exposed to the mind of God. And that should lead us to grow closer together, to love one another more deeply, because God doesn't have some wildly different purpose for you than he does for me. We're all going in the same direction. And we might take different routes to get there, but we're all going in the same direction. This is so important to Paul because the Corinthian church is pulling itself apart by some people saying that they are wise and have understanding and you plebs just can't get it. And so we're just going to go and do our own thing. Or you're from the wrong place. You're not Corinthians like we are. You're Athenians or even worse, you're from outside of Greece altogether and you're just a barbarian that sounds like they're babbling nonsense the whole time. You have no place amongst our number. And Paul wants to deal with all of that to say you are all filled with the same spirit. You have all been exposed to the mind of God through it. So we're all going the same way. Stop this foolishness. The Spirit leads us to salvation. It leads us to greater Christ-likeness. And lastly, the Spirit leads us to glorify God. And he does so by greater uh, maturity in verses 14 through 16. 
Paul says in these closing verses, the Spirit of God is at work in our lives to lead us ultimately to glorify God. The natural person who does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him, it is the spiritual person, the Christian, who judges all things and is not to be judged by them. And what Paul means by that is that we don't get to say to each other, um, I don't think you're doing the right thing here. I don't think that was the wisest thing to say. Paul wasn't saying, no, 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 you can't ever judge another Christian. Paul fully expects that we look at one another's lives and, and not in a, you know, putting ourselves in the position of God judging other Christians, but criticize one another and bless one another and build one another up and, and so on. What he means is that the wisdom of the world that leads them into ever greater sin should never be allowed to stand in judgment over the things of God. You should never accept those things and use them to influence your understanding of God and what he's doing in your life. The outside world doesn't get to judge the Christian. That's just not how it works. It makes no sense. Because the world will constantly reject the things of God. And if you imbibe that way of thinking, you will begin to reject those things and will make all sorts of weird decisions and believe weird things about God if you're trying to blend those two things together. A great example of that in the church at the moment, sort of generally in the West, is the, um, the view of open theism, the idea that God doesn't know the future. Now, we might think, why on earth would anyone ever want to say God doesn't really know the future? That sounds ludicrous to me. And you're right, it is ludicrous to believe that. But the reason is the world outside listens to what Christians say. And they hear Christians say that God is a God of love. He knows Um, He knows each one of us. He calls us. He wants to save us. He just desperately wants the world to be a better place. And God is doing that work. God is a God of love and of salvation. But the non-Christian world also is able to see that the world is full of death and destruction and chaos and disease and terrible things. So how do you put those two things together? Either God cannot be all-powerful and all-loving, or he can't know the future. Stuff happens and God just has to sort of try and make the best he can out of a bad situation. But he didn't know that those difficult circumstances were coming around the corner. Big events like the, you know, the Asian tsunami or um, other sort of cataclysmic events, volcanic eruptions, famines and so on, lead people to this. If God knew that was going to happen and God had the power to stop it, why didn't he? He can't be a loving God if he didn't stop it. And so Christians have imbibed that thinking and gone, yeah, okay, that kind of makes sense. God just didn't know. Didn't know. God didn't know that you were going to get sick. Of course, the problem is if God didn't know that you were going to get sick, then does God have any power to stop you from getting sick? Does God have the power to heal you if you are sick? If God doesn't know the future and God says to you in John chapter 6 that I will raise up all those that the Father draws to me on the last day, how can Jesus say that? Jesus can't know that if he doesn't know the future. He might be guessing really well, but he can't possibly know. This is why Paul was keen that they don't use the way of thinking of the world, the wisdom of the world, to judge the way of thinking of God. Because we will always compromise. Always. I thoroughly enjoy watching QI, or I did, of quiz show TV of celebrity panel quiz show. It used to be hosted by Stephen Fry, and I, I love that. It's the perfect blend for me of just utterly useless facts 
and comedy, and I love both of those things, neither of which particularly helps me in life, but I just love learning completely useless facts, uh, and I, I enjoy a, a laugh, and so QI was great. But all the way through QI, Stephen Fry is held up as the great polymath of our age, the great genius of our age. And yet every time he would bring up the subject of Christianity, he and the panelists on the show sort of trot out just the most feeble and inane arguments against Christianity that have been answered in some cases for nearly 2,000 years and would present them as if these were just knockdown arguments. No Christian has ever understood how to answer these questions. And you think, you just haven't read anything. There are people out there who dealt with this in like the third century. I don't know what you're talking about. This is the wisdom of our world. Christians just can't be right. That's just the end of it. You're just wrong. Paul says we don't let that determine how we see our faith, how we see scripture, how we see God, how we live for him. Instead, it works the other way around. Christians have real clarity. They see the way, the world, the way God made it to be. We understand what it was supposed to be, what it is now, and why there is a problem, why there is a disjunction between the two, and what needs to happen for that to be put right. And so Paul says, we have the mind of Christ. Who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? No one, but we receive wisdom from God to understand our world better. And so we can speak and act and think with consistency in a world that seems to change every two minutes with some new fad that will give us everything we want and need if we just follow in that way until next Tuesday, of course, in which case it will change. And this is what glorifying God looks like in day-to-day life, that we grow in wisdom and we use what God has given us in his word as we are equipped by his spirit to judge the things of the world always that way around. We always conform what we see to what we know and not seek to do it the other way round. Because this elevates God and says, God is always right. The world will almost certainly always be wrong. And so we glorify him all the more. What does Pentecost mean today? You're filled with God's spirit when you become a Christian. And there will come a day for us to deal with the rest of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and all the other parts of Scripture where we might talk about the role of the Holy Spirit and the things that the Spirit enables us to do and the things that it doesn't enable us to do. That's not for today. But what the Holy Spirit will always, always, always do is seek to glorify God in our world. And as long as we make that the priority of the Spirit in our lives, we will never go astray. That it's about the glorifying of God through our salvation, through our growing in Christ-likeness, and through our maturing in faith such that we see the things of God first and the things of the world second. That we truly live in the power of the Holy Spirit today. The Holy Spirit is given to us to equip us, to empower us. This is what we want. And so let's pray that we would see it manifest in our lives today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word. And Lord, we all confess before you this morning that there have been times we know what your word says, but we see the things of the world and we just can't help but think that makes more sense to us. We hear the arguments made by the non-Christian world and we are fearful that perhaps somehow the Bible is wrong, that maybe our faith isn't quite right, that we haven't understood. And Lord God, we thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit who convicted us of sin in the first place and committed us to Christ, who has been leading us on that 
journey of faith from that moment on so that we grow in Christ-likeness every day. And we thank you, Lord, that through your Spirit you equip us to become more mature, that we would glorify you in saying, yes, the things of God are the things that are true. The things of God's Word are the things that are right. And if everything else in the world must be uh, deemed to be fictitious and false in the face of God's Word, then let it be so, because you have revealed it by your Spirit to us. Lord God, we thank you that you do accurately describe the human condition, the fallenness of our world, and what needs to be done to put it right. Lord, we are able to see the world clearly, see our lives clearly, And so we pray, Lord, that you would fill us with the Holy Spirit, that you would fill us with power. Lord, not so that we might wander the world doing great miraculous deeds, as lovely as it might be to do that, but so, Lord, we would understand who you are properly and understand who we are properly and understand this world properly and then go and live in a manner that is pleasing to you regardless of the circumstances. Lord God, we ask this, for this is the very center of our being now that we are in Christ. Lord God, I pray for anyone this morning who is here or who is watching that doesn't know Christ as their Lord and Savior. And I pray, Lord, that by your Spirit you would reveal the reality of their life to them, that you would have them cast themselves upon Christ with complete abandon, for he was their only Savior. Lord God, we pray for more of your Spirit, more, constantly, every day. And Lord, we pray that you might be glorified in its giving. We ask it all, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.